Good afternoon. I'm Tom McWhorter, Vice President of Enrollment and External Programs here at Calvin, and I'd like to welcome everyone to today's presentation of the January Series 2008 of Calvin College. I'd also like to especially welcome uh, those who are joining us today in the remote sites. Um, don't forget, you folks here, don't forget that they're here as well. Folks out in California, uh, Florida, Massachusetts, as well as uh, sites across Lower Michigan here. So welcome to all of them as well. Uh, we're pleased to deliver this opportunity to them, as well as to all of us gathered here. Will you join me in prayer? O Lord of heaven and earth, we invoke your presence with us in this place as we gather to consider your hand in our world. Thank you for our speaker today and the insights he will bring. <clears throat> Thank you for the blessings we receive at your hand and the comfort we have in your provision for us, especially our forgiveness in Christ. We pray, Lord, for your peace as we live our lives in uncertain times. May you be honored by the way we live as your people and the labors of our hands. And may we find our rest in you. We pray again today, Lord, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And now, the Reverend Laura Schmidt, Dean of the Chapel and Professor of Religion here at Calvin, will introduce our speaker. The Reverend Dr. Timothy George is the founding dean of Beeson Divinity School, an international, uh, interdenominational evangelical theological school within Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Beeson was founded in 1988, and as the founding dean, Dr. George has been instrumental in shaping the school's character and mission. In my visits to Beeson, I have been particularly impressed with how the school embodies both genuine ecumenicity and genuine evangelical commitment. In many divinity schools, faculty are encouraged to set their denominational identities aside in pursuit of some sort of lowest common denominator Christianity. But at Beeson, Dr. George encourages each member of his faculty to be a vital and passionate representative of his or her own tradition. It is his own generous, hospitable, and ecumenical spirit that has so informed the character of the school. Dr. George has both his MDiv and his PhD from Harvard University. He teaches church history, historical theology, and the theology of the Reformers. He is currently serving as executive editor for Christianity Today, along with serving on the editorial advisory boards of the Harvard Theological Review, Christian History, and Books and Culture. He has written more than 20 books and regularly contributes to scholarly journals. He has also been active in the evangelical dialogue with the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin College is grateful to Van Wyck Risk and Financial Management for underwriting today's presentation. Now please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy George. Thank you very much uh, for that wonderful, warm welcome and for that very nice introduction. It's a joy to be here on the campus of Calvin College and to be connected through the mysteries of the websites and the internets with all peoples everywhere they're listening in. Now, I have a big topic today, Theology for an Age of Terror. A few years ago, I learned a new word. Maybe you know this word already, but it was a new word for me. And when I learn a new word, I just like to use it over and over and over again. This new word was ecotone, E-C-O-T-O-N-E, ecotone. Do you know that word? Ecotone. 
It's a word derived from the worlds of biology and ecology. An ecotone is a place where two or more ecosystems come together. They blend and merge into one another. The point of transition between two communities or biospheres. That's an ecotone. A good example of an ecotone would be when a river flows into the ocean, when the tide meets the current. Or when you're flying out west in an airplane for miles and miles, it seems you fly over nothing but flat plains, cornfields upon cornfields, and then all of a sudden out of the airplane you look up and there are the Rocky Mountains where the plains meet the mountains. That's also an ecotone. Field biologists have another term for this phenomenon, edge effect. It refers to that fluidity, the shifting, fragile, inherent instability that always characterizes an ecotone, the edge effect. But while such a space may be unstable and shifting, fragile and risky, it is also highly fertile, characterized by diversity, fluidity, and transformation. Yes, an ecotone is a place of risk and great danger, but also one of generativity and fecundity, a place where new life is spawned and new beginnings are made. Now to extrapolate from the world of biology and geography to that of history, I want to suggest that one way of understanding what we used to call Western civilization is to see it as a series of great ecotonic moments. Moments in time when great ages or epochs blend into one another, often with clashing and violent events. And there are many of these we could think about. Perhaps some of the most memorable in our own history would be 1453, the fall of Constantinople. An ecotonic moment when one age, the medieval world, was dying and another age, what we now call modernity, was struggling to come to birth. In that perilous age, Martin Luther stood with courage, a prophet of judgment like Jeremiah, a preacher of grace like St. Paul, while in the east, in Constantinople, the second Rome, the armies of Islam, brought shockwaves that are still with us today. Another great ecotonic moment would be perhaps 1789, the fall of the Bastille, which in some ways brought to an end that era marked by Reformation and Renaissance and ushered in what we now call Enlightenment. And perhaps we're not too close to September 11, 2001 to see it as yet another ecotonic moment in the history of our civilization. But I want to talk today about another moment that is much earlier than any of these I've mentioned. Often September 11, 2001 is compared to December 7, 1941 as a day, as President Roosevelt said, that would live in infamy. But perhaps a more appropriate analogy might be August 24, 410 when the city of Rome was besieged and pillaged by an army of 40,000 so-called barbarians led by the Osama bin Laden of late antiquity, a warrior named 
Alaric. Now you can tell just by his name, Alaric, that he's no good. <laughs> I have never met any baby boy named Alaric. I've met a few Anselms in my life and some Abelards and even an Alcuin, but never an Alaric. One can still see the effects of this cataclysmic event when walking through the ruins of the Roman Forum today, as I did recently. There, the Basilica Aemilia, this great marketplace, which was kind of like the Wall Street of ancient Rome, a beautiful structure in the Forum with a marble portico where so much of the business of ancient Rome was transacted. When you walk across those broken shards of marble, the ruins that are there, you can still see, if you look very closely, green stains of copper coins melted into the stone from the conflagration set by Alaric and his marauders in 410. Before that event, Roman coins bore the legend Invicta Roma Eterna, Eternal Unconquerable Rome. Indeed, it had been more than 800 years since the Eternal City had fallen to the attack of an enemy. This was in the year 390 B.C. when Celtic tribes from Gaul, France today, moved southward into the Italian peninsula and overran Rome. 390 B.C. Eight centuries had passed since Rome had fallen to such an attack. In many ways, in 410, Rome was like America prior to 9-11, the world's only superpower, a military, an economic giant. But in 410, Rome's military power could not prevent its walls being breached, its women raped, its sacred precincts burned and sacked. Now, historians have forever debated about whether this really marks the fall of Rome. And in some ways, of course, it does not. It was simply one episode in a whole series of episodes going back perhaps at least to 330 when the Emperor Constantine removed the capital of the empire from Rome to that new city he founded and named after himself Constantinopolitan urban city. Or in 386, when a great Roman army suffered a devastating defeat in the east again at Adrianople. Or to look forward, perhaps 455 would be a better date because on that particular occasion, Rome suffered a far more devastating pillage at the hands of another barbarian after whom no one ever names their sons either, Genseric or 476, which is the traditional date in most of the textbooks. That was the date when the last Roman emperor, a little boy, a young boy, 14 years old, was deposed by a hairy barbarian warrior named Oravacar. The name of that young Roman emperor, boy emperor, was Romulus Augustulus. An ironic name named after Romulus, the founder of Rome, and Augustulus, a minutive form of Augustus, the greatest emperor of Rome. 476, there would be no more Roman emperors as such after 476 as the second Rome in the east 
assume that mantle. So the date itself, 410, is not such an important thing to argue and fight about. It was in some ways not as cataclysmic event as some of these other invasions and sacks and burnings and pillages were, and yet it had a tremendous impact. One reason is it was so surprising. Why were the Romans surprised at this? Why had they not seen what was happening? Why had they done not, not done something to prevent it? Well, at the heart of this invasion and sack of Rome in 410 was the fact that this had really been happening for a long, long time. At the heart of it in some ways was the issue that we struggle with in our culture today in this country, in North America, immigration. Why did these so-called barbarians want to come into Rome anyway? They were basically hunters living north of the Danube and north of the Rhine River in what is today Central Europe, parts of Germany and Hungary, the Czech Republic. Well, because they looked across those rivers and they saw their opportunity, they saw their a motivation for economic improvement. They wanted to cease being hunters, foraging for food in the German forests, and to become farmers, settle down with lands to cultivate and houses to build, vineyards to enjoy. And so it was an immigration problem in a way that led them in to Rome to start with. And the Romans welcomed them to a great extent because they could do things Romans didn't want to do, such as serving in the army, for example. Many of the Roman armies were made up to a large extent of recruits from the various barbarian tribes that had been infiltrating into the Roman Empire. So in 410, when Alaric shows up parked outside the gates of Rome, this is a surprise. What does he want? Those who had, were left in Rome, the emperor had already left to go to, Vienna, to Ravenna at that time, but those who were left in Rome, some of the senators, sent out a delegation to negotiate with Alaric. And they said, oh, if you in invade our city, that uh, people will rise up. There will be a multitude to revolt against you and turn you back. Very wisely, and with a somewhat wry grin, no doubt, on his face, he said, well, the, the thicker the sheaves, the sharper the scythe. They said, well, what... what what can we keep? What, what can we keep if we allow you to enter into the city? Two words, he said, your lives. Still they resisted and Alaric did come into the city. For three days his soldiers ran through the streets, burning, looting, destroying. And we should not be put off by historians who tell us this was not such a significant event for the people who lived through it. From the perspective of 2,000 years nearly of history, we can look back and say, well, this is just one minor episode in a string of others. But to those who experienced it, it was an enormous and indeed very shocking event. One of those persons was, was Pelagius. Pelagius was a monk from, from Britain who had himself migrated to Rome. He wrote to a noble Roman lady, 
both of whom had been in Rome when this happened. And this is what he said. This happened only recently. Rome, the mistress of the world, shivered, crushed with fear at the sound of the blaring trumpets and the howling of the Goths. Where then was the nobility? Where were the certain and distinct ranks of dignity? Everyone was mingled together and shaken with fear. Every household had its grief, and an all-pervading terror gripped us. Slave and noble were one. The same specter of death stalked before us all. It's an eyewitness account. Well, in far away Bethlehem, where Jesus had been born, the other end of the Roman Empire, there was another monkish figure, Jerome. Saint Jerome, the great translator of the Bible into Latin, was busy working away at his commentary on Ezekiel when word came to him that Rome had fallen. Jerome tells us he sat stupefied in total silence for three days and could not speak. Rome was besieged, he wrote to a friend. The city to which the whole world fell has fallen. If Rome can perish, what can be safe? Every household had its grief, and all pervading terror prevailed. Now, responding to those who had said that Rome fell because the punishment of the gods against the Christians, the Christians had come in a century or so before, and had expelled the pagan deities. Theodosius the Great, who was the father of the current emperor, Honorius, had actually passed a law banishing statues of the pagan deities. Because the Christians had abandoned the gods, now the gods had taken their revenge by allowing Rome to fall to the barbarians. To answer that question, that problem, on the other side of the Mediterranean, the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, Aurelius Augustinus, began writing The City of God. He would later call it an opus magnum et arduum, a great and laborious work, and indeed it is. Here it is, in this nice little penguin classic with 1,097 pages. A great and laborious work indeed. He completed the book around 426, four years before he died himself. Its influence extended to the Reformation and beyond into our own time for 1,500 years. It has been the bedrock of a Christian philosophy of history. How do Christians cope with an age of terror? This was the question that bothered Augustine, that prompted him to write The City of God. Before I talk about Augustine just a little bit and his response to this tragedy and what, if anything, we might learn from it today, let me remind you about another figure who also pondered deeply about the fall of Rome. And this was Edward Gibbon. His great classic, which you can buy in three volumes in the Everyman Library, nicely bound, The Rise and Fall, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon was a native of England. He had gone to Oxford as a young boy. There he had converted to Catholicism, just as a teenager. But his father, who was a somewhat uh, proper Anglican leader, 
reacted negatively to his son's dalliance with Catholicism, said, we've got to take him out of Oxford, get him away from this influence, shipped him off to Switzerland, a good reformed country, especially Lausanne where Gibbon ended up. And here he did actually live for a while with a Swiss Protestant pastor and imbibed a certain kind of Calvinism himself and never again wanted to return to Catholicism. So he was cured of that problem, but he, he had a different one in Switzerland because not only did he study Swiss Calvinism, he also became enamored with the rising tide of Enlightenment thought. This was the age of Voltaire, whom he heard speak in Lausanne. And Gibbon himself became very skeptical in his approach to theology and religion. And this idea, this skeptical sense, pervades his analysis of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. He tells us in 1764 he visited Rome and there he sat on the Capitoline Hill. We can still sit today and look down on those same ruins of the Forum, the Colosseum in the background. And he pondered the meaning of the decline and fall of this, the greatest civilization that the world had ever known to that point, and what it might mean and how it happened, and what role in particular the Christian faith had to play in it. Well, if you want Gibbon, you have to read Gibbon. I'm not talking about him today. But I want to point out that he realized this was really something significant, an ecotonic moment of enormous proportions. In London at the time, there was an American diplomat Benjamin Franklin who said to Gibbon I know you've been to Rome you've been thinking about this problem about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire I can give you some other reasons to write another book about the decline and fall of the British Empire and indeed the first volume of Gibbon's great classic was published in that ominous year ominous for Great Britain anyway 1776 Back to Augustine. As a theologian in an age of terror, Augustine provides wisdom for our own precarious situation. Like C.S. Lewis, Augustine came to the Christian faith through a torturous process of denial, doubt, false starts, dead ends, and surprising discovery. For nearly nine years, he followed the way of the Manichaeans, these radical dualists who divided the world into kingdoms of light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong, and who taught that matter itself, the very stuff of the world, was inherently evil, to be shunned. Manichaeism was, I suppose in our day, something like a California cult. Very syncretistic, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Eastern mysticism, a little bit of Gnostic spirituality, all woven together in a very intriguing and attractive package. Augustine, for nine years, during his 20s, from the age of 19 until late 20s, was caught up in the Manichaean way. He became disillusioned with it, and he turned then to academic skepticism. The skeptics were in some ways not unlike some of our deconstructionist and postmodernists today. They deny that there was any possibility of knowing absolutes about anything really. He soon came to see how circular that position was and he turned next to Neoplatonism. 
Neoplatonism offered Augustine a model of transcendence. It explained the world in terms of spiritual reality, ideals of truth and goodness and beauty that could not be reduced to the flow and flux of the visible changing world all around us. And Neoplatonism would continue to influence Augustine even after he became a Christian. But there were two major problems with the philosophy of Neoplatonism that bothered Augustine deeply and could not be squared with his newfound biblical faith. The first was the fact that Neoplatonism argued matter had always existed. Creation was the work of an artisan, Plato's demiurge, who had shaped, reshaped primordial matter into some other form. But the first five words of the Bible contradicted this cosmogony. In the beginning, God created. Augustine reflected deeply on the creation narrative in Genesis. And in book 11 of his Confessions, he made a startling, brilliant discovery. He came to see that God had not only created both time and space, but that he had created them both simultaneously and interdependently. As some scholars have pointed out, it was this insight which Augustine derived from his meditation on the scriptural narrative that anticipated Einstein's theory of relativity by some 1,500 years. But there was another problem with Platonism and Neoplatonism, and it was that it had no explanation for history. It did not take history seriously. But the Christian doctrine of creation does not mean merely that when God said, poof, the material cosmos popped into being. It means rather that God himself is a principal actor in the unfolding drama of the world, its peoples, and their destiny. As John 1.14 puts it, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Neoplatonism had no place for history and thus no place for incarnation. But Augustine came to see that this was indeed the central datum of Christian revelation and the key to understanding the human story and the Christian story as a part of the human story. Between the conversion of Constantine in 312 and the conversion of Augustine in 386, so famously told at the end of Book 8 of the Confessions. Between this period of time, the beginning of the 4th century and ending of the same century, the Christian movement had been transformed from a small persecuted sect, a kind of mystery religion it seemed to most people, into a first tolerated and then legally sanctioned and finally officially established religion within the Roman Empire. And for those who always like to oppose Christ and Constantine, uh, we should remember and not forget that there were indeed many benefits that came about as a result of this transformation including the fact that Christians were no longer routinely hauled into the arena or fed to hungry lions or boiled alive in oil. They were able to build churches. It was during this period that the great basilicas of Rome that we can still see today, the Constantinian basilicas of St. Peter, St. Paul outside the wall, St. Mary Major, and St. John Lateran, all of these were built as great 
centers of worship and Christian devotion during this very time. But within a few generations, there was indeed a transformation that went beyond simply the acknowledgement of legal toleration, so that those who had once been persecuted became the persecutors. And for the first time, Christians had to think about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ while also participating in an active way in civil governance. What does it mean to wage a just war? How can followers of a Palestinian peasant who declined to call armies of angels to deliver him from physical assault now sanction violence against heretics and schismatics like the Donatists of North Africa against whom Augustine himself struggled? Not to say recalcitrant pagans who would not name the name of Christ. This, for the first time in Christian history, became a problem that could not be finessed or put off. And it was in the context of this development that the events of 410 took place and that the city of God was written. Eusebius of Caesarea, who was the biographer of Constantine, had hailed the emperor and his conversion to Christ, hailed him as the 13th apostle, acclaimed his conversion in utopian terms. Now, nearly a century later, Augustine realized that such hopes were as misplaced as they had been premature. As the wealthy nobles, the refugees from Rome, began to stream across the Mediterranean Sea to come to North Africa, escaping from the ravages of Alaric, many of them came to Hippo, where Augustine was bishop. It was the second largest city in the Roman province of Africa after Carthage. They came with their horror stories of Alaric's acts, and Augustine reminded his hearers that the city of God was on pilgrimage here on earth. One of his favorite words, peregrinatio, pilgrimage. He was on pilgrimage in the world, never totally and finally and fully at home in this world. Not exempt from the ravages of terror and war and violence, the ravages of time itself. That indeed the city of God was ever marked by goading fears, tormenting sorrows, disquieting labors, and dangerous, dangerous temptations. Augustine looked at two alternatives as he crafted what we call a philosophy of history in the city of God. One was the very attractive, alluring alternative of apocalypticism. Deeply rooted, of course, in the scriptures themselves, in the history of the early church itself, the, the idea of an imminent inbreaking and divine rescue of the human world and of the church itself from the evils of the day found deep roots in church historical giants like Justin Martyr even and Tertullian, that other great North African giant of early Christian thought. As Augustine thought about the apocalyptic option, he came to reject it he came to see it as not deeply, sufficiently enough rooted in Scripture, and so he was no chiliast, he was no millennialist who was awaiting the imminent return of Christ 
as a way of coping with the world in which we live. But he also rejected this thought of imperialism. This idea that God had so worked in Eusebius of Caesarea's description of Constantine as the 13th apostle that indeed there was a kind of divinely sanctioned imperial way forward in which we should give complete uh, confidence and complete uh, trust in the ways of the world. Augustine sought a middle way between imperialism and apocalypticism. A different way. He compared his times to the pressing of olives. Even today, one of the things we all think about when use when we think about Mediterranean cooking is olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, right? Well, Augustine had olive trees growing all around him. And he wrote about the events of 410 and the terror that was gripping the Mediterranean world in terms of the pressing of olives. He said, we are in the olive press of history and the oil is oozing out. And this is a time of great fear and great concern. But we cannot look at this as necessarily the beginnings of those birth pangs of the very last age in the world. Indeed, Augustine talked about, is this the final end of the human community? And he said, do not lose heart. There will be an end to every earthly kingdom. If this is now the end, God sees it. But perhaps. And all of the theology of the city of God hinges on that one word, perhaps. Perhaps it has not yet come to that. Perhaps, for some reason or other, call it weakness or mercy or mere wretchedness, perhaps we are all hoping that it has not yet come. And so how to live faithfully as believers in Jesus Christ in the midst of this perhaps. Some people saw immediate benefits and even could praise God for the fall of 410, Alaric's invasion and all that came for that because they could see how God was using that event in some way to bring about the Christian message to those who had never heard it. One such person was named Orosius. Orosius was from Spain. He was a young scholar. He was a protege of Augustine. And he wrote a book, in fact, on the history of Rome in which he interpreted the events of 410 in just this way, in a kind of a very confident providentialist interpretation of history. This is what Orosius said. If it were only for this, that the barbarians had come into the lands of Rome, that from east to west the churches of Christ should be filled with Huns, Swabians, Vandals, Burgundians, and other innumerable tribes of believers, it would seem that we should praise God for this event, for His mercy, because even though it entails our ruin, so many nations came thus to a knowledge of the truth which they could find in no other way. Now, while Augustine appreciated that kind of argument at one level, it's through this catastrophe that the gospel is going forth and many other groups are becoming Christians, he could not place the kind of confidence in that view of history as Erosius seemed to do. Because it seemed to play into a view of continuing progress, what 
in more recent theological terms we have learned to call postmillennialism in a way that Augustine himself found no justification for either in scripture or in history. Well, I want to I come away from the time of Augustine and begin to talk a little bit about our own ecotonic moment and what, if anything, we can learn from these musings. Here are some thoughts which I simply offer to you for what they're worth, for your consideration. It seems that today we live in a world when the assumptions of Christendom have been shaken, if not completely broken, again today by forces of terror that we would see far more violent, far more devastating in their impact than Alaric and his Visigothic armies. And Augustine teaches us that we must not equate any political entity, whether it be the Roman Empire, the American Republic, the United Nations, the European community, or anything else, with the kingdom of God. And here I might say there is a contrast, an immediate contrast that we must make with the religion of Islam. For Islam proclaims an undifferentiated understanding of the human community, what is called the Ummah. Whereas Christianity, and especially in the Augustinian perspective, less so in some other traditions, but especially in the Augustinian perspective, requires a proper respect for the complementary but clearly distinguishable roles of what we call church and civil authority. Whenever this distinction is forgotten or minimized, the Christian faith is in danger of being politicized and the state idolized. When this happens, religious liberty invariably gets trampled. The danger of being co-opted by forces inimical to the gospel are, is not limited to one political party or ideology. And in this election year, it's good for us to think about that because it can arise from any point along the political spectrum, from the raucous right, the loony left, or the mushy middle. In the early 1930s, many earnest Christians in Germany equated the Nazi state with the direct unfolding of God's purposes in the world. Not unlike Erosius, Augustine's contemporary, tried to do in the wake of 410. In the face of that crisis of the Third Reich, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and other courageous church leaders drafted and supported the Barman Declaration. The first and second articles in this statement of faith argue for the supremacy of Jesus Christ over every temporal authority that would usurp the crown rights of the King of Kings. Jesus Christ, as he has testified to us in the Holy Scriptures, is the one word of God whom we are to hear, whom we are to trust and obey in life and death. Just as Jesus Christ is the pledge of the forgiveness of our sins, just so and with the same earnestness, he is also God's mighty claim on the entirety of human life. In Him we encounter a joyous liberation from the godless claims of this world to free and thankful service to its creatures. This is one side of the Augustinian equation. But there is another. For Augustine knew so well that Christians hold a double citizenship in this world. Like the Apostle Paul, who could claim that 
his true political identity, the Greek word is politoima, Philippians 3.20, his real political allegiance is in heaven, not here on earth. But nonetheless, he was quite willing to appeal to Caesar in Rome when as a Roman citizen his own life was at stake. So believers in Christ live as sojourners, as pilgrims, as resident aliens in a world of profound discontinuity and frequently contested loyalty. Augustine never stopped reminding the people in his day of that reality. He says, remember the city of God does not run its course alone in this world because both cities in their course amid humankind certainly experienced checkered times together just as it was from the beginning. I think one of the most interesting contemporary interpreters of this Augustinian dynamic is Jean Betka Elstein. She summarizes the counsel Augustine gives to believers beset by such ambiguity, such fears and hopes in this way. Resisting altogether any notion of earthly perfection, Augustine offers instead a complex moral map that creates space for loyalty and love and care as well as for a chastened form of civic virtue. The key word here, I think, is chastened. A chastened form of civic virtue. And this calls for a posture of, in, of engagement that acknowledges, in the words of the old gospel hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. While at the same time, working with all our might to love our neighbors as ourselves and to seek justice and peace as we carry out what Augustine called our business within this common mortal life. There are two major and regrettably common, all too common mistakes Augustine wants us to avoid as we craft a theology for the age of terror. One is the lure of utopianism. This is the mistake of thinking we can produce a human society that will solve our problems and bring about the kingdom of God on earth. This was the basic error of both Marxism and 19th century liberalism. The other error, equally disastrous, is cynicism. This creeps up on us as we see ever-present evil all around us. We want to withdraw into our own self-contained circle of contentment. And this can happen in a secular skeptics club just as well as a pious Bible study holy huddle. How can we avoid such reactions? Perhaps another great Christian of the past, Francis of Assisi, can help us here a bit. One day when Francis was writing back to Assisi soon after his conversion, his commitment to Christ, speaking from the cross, go and rebuild my church. He saw a leper on the road. He reached out to embrace the leper and actually exchanged with him the kiss of peace. While embracing this filthy, diseased outcast, Francis said he was overcome by a dual sensation. One was nausea. He wanted to throw up. 
The other was a sense of sweetness and well-being that suffused his entire body. In an age of terror, we need both. If all we experience is nausea, then we become cynics. We give up on the world. We turn away either into some kind of apocalyptic ideology or into our own self-centered box of concerns. It's very easy to be a cynic in this kind of world. But if all we have is sweetness, suavitas, Francis's word, then our faith will amount to little more than sentimental fluff. Genuine Christian faith takes place on the thin line between nausea and sweetness. Feel-good Christianity, so common in our popular culture, actually masks the suffering and pain of the world, the real world for which Jesus Christ died. So how do we carry on in this kind of ambiguity on this thin line between sweetness and nausea? I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier in some ways as a 20th century Augustinian figure of sorts. C.S. Lewis preached at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin at Oxford on October the 22nd, 1939. Arguably another ecotonic moment in recent history. Less than two months earlier, of course, Hitler had invaded Poland. World War II was underway. Britain was about to face the horrible Nazi onslaught, the beginning of the Battle of Britain. On that occasion, this is what Lewis told the assembled students in that church. It may seem odd for us to carry on classes, to go about our academic routine in the midst of a great war. What is the use of beginning when there is so little chance of finishing? How can we study Latin, geography, algebra at a time like this? Aren't we just fiddling while Rome burns? This impending war, he said, has taught us some important things. Life is short. The world is fragile. All of us are vulnerable. But we are here because this is our calling. Our lives are rooted not only in time but also in eternity. And the life of learning, humbly offered to God, is its own reward. It is one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we shall hereafter enjoy in heaven and which we are called to display even now amidst the brokenness all around us. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is our calling too, I think. Amidst the brokenness, including the threat of terrorism and the ambiguities of life that impinge upon us and the uncertain answers we get from all parts of the political spectrum, amidst the brokenness all around us, we are called to be faithful, faithful to God's calling, to bear witness to the beauty, the light, and the divine reality that we shall forever enjoy in heaven. And we are to do this in a culture that seems at times like Augustine's, crumbling, a world crumbling all around us with dangers we cannot predict.
As Augustine aged, he increasingly thought of the world, its politics, its culture, its institutions, as a tottering old man whose days were clearly numbered. You're surprised that the world is losing its grip, he asked, that the world has grown old? Don't hold on to the old man, the world. Don't refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away, the world is losing its grip, the world is short of breath. Don't fear, your youth shall be renewed as an eagle. As Augustine lay dying in 430, a new wave of terror was sweeping across the Mediterranean world. The Vandals, we still use that word in our language, don't we? Vandalism, name for them. The Vandals, led by that other warrior named Genseric, had surrounded Hippo, bringing torture, violence, disarray to Augustine's church and to his people. As he lay on his deathbed, he chanted the Psalms. He had them written in large letters so he could see them. And he would chant the Psalms again and again and again. In doing so, he might have come across this verse in Psalm 31, 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. Thank you very much. We have time for some questions. There are four microphones in the house, two downstairs, two up in the balcony. If you could line up at the microphones, Dr. George will call on you uh, and point to which mic he'd like to have a question from. And please speak clearly. So we're at a moment in time where we have to make decisions and elections are upon us. In steering that course between utopianism or, or avoiding the errors of utopianism and cynicism would staying with our military in the Middle East be regarded as utopianism in your view? Would early withdrawal be cynicism in your view? Does this have nothing to do with your speech? I'm trying to figure out where the practical application might lie yeah. today. Good. I think the answer to the question would depend on whether or not you can tell me with assurance whether or not the war in Iraq is a just war. I'm speaking now on behalf of St. Augustine. I think if, if Augustine were convinced it was a just war and that we should be there on behalf of justice and peace in the world, then I think he would say, stay the course. On the other hand, if he did not have that conviction, I think he might uh, clearly have a different point of view and urge that you know, there be some uh, withdrawal of American troops. It's always dangerous to speculate what somebody who died in 430 would say in 2008, but I think I'm right. Is it a just war or not? You can't answer your question until you answer the prior question, I think. But Augustine clearly uh, did, was not a pacifist. Let me make that very clear. Uh, and he, he sanctioned himself the use of violence against the Donatist 
these were not well they were terrorists in a sort of a sort there was a group of them known as the circumcellions who would throw acid in the face of priests and do very terrorist like things uh, but they were basically Christians they were Christians who had withdrawn from the church and who were going their own separate way and Augustine felt it was very important to preserve the unity of church even at the expense of using violence against them and so I, I think it's not the question of you know the use of force but you know whether or not it meets the criteria which Augustine of course helped to develop himself of uh, just war a question. Um, there's, there's another ecatonic moment that comes to my mind, which is the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon and the exile that followed. And I'm wondering if you could compare Augustine's answer to this problem of terror with the answer that comes out of the exile. Yeah. Well, I see some continuity there because in, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, you have that uh, wonderful passage. Is it chapter 29? where he writes the letter to the exiles in Babylon. He says, I want you to plant vineyards and build houses. You know that passage. And carry on life there. Have children and grandchildren. And carry on your common life, your, your, your common business in this common mortal life, as Augustine would put it. <clears throat> and so that sort of thing, even in a, in a situation of exile, uh, I think uh, what in the Reformed tradition we call common grace is at work. And Augustine is so much an opponent of quietism and apocalypticism that he wants to encourage engagement and even under conditions of you know, exile and captivity to carry on uh, family life, business life, cultural life, political life insofar as you're able to do so. I think he just wants to do that with a kind of eschatological reserve, with a kind of not completely giving yourself to this process in a way that ever lets you forget this is temporary this is not the city of God in its final uh, eschatological fulfillment and so don't invest yourself in this with that kind of ultimacy everything you do in this life is penultimate to the ultimate and that's the point he wants to make and I think he would make that point uh, to the exiles in Babylon as he tried to do in the city of God to the people who uh, around him who were exiles themselves from Rome Yes, sir. Uh, should we apologize to the Muslims for the Crusades, as some evangelical leaders have done, so that our missionaries are safe on the field? Let me repeat that for the sake of people uh, hearing this remotely. The question is, should we apologize uh, to Muslims for the Crusades, as some of our evangelical leaders have done, in order to keep our missionaries safe on the field? I, I'm not sure that such apologies actually keep our missionaries safe on the field. Uh, if you look actually at the record of violence against Christians all over the world, uh, those kinds of statements usually made by uh, rather intellectually elite folks uh, in nice academic places uh, probably don't have the kind of impact on the ground uh, that might be desired or hoped for. But your question I think raises another issue and that is how do we relate to a, a world religious phenomenon as varied and is in some ways difficult for us to understand and to take on board as Islam seems to be? I wrote, wrote a little book about this a couple of years ago called Is the Father of Jesus the God of Muhammad? And it seems to me that this is a part of the debate that is going on right now within Islam itself. 
whether or not there can develop within Islam and I think it has to come from within Islam and not be imposed by anybody else outside of Islam can there develop a kind of let me put this carefully Augustinian like sense of uh, complementarity between the religious community and the civil community that seems to me to be the question. There are some places where it's being tried. Turkey would be one example. Bosnia would be another, but with very mixed results. I think that's an open question, but it is the question going forward. It seems to me that Christians want to relate with generosity and charity and Jesus-like uh, attitudes toward all peoples everywhere, and that includes Muslims. It'd be a mistake, I think, for us to paint all Muslims with the same brush. Of course, that's not the case. But also not to be naive in our reading of the situation on a world scale. So your question opens up about 10,000 others that I could say go read my book, but I won't do that. I appreciate your call to return to Augustine's sense of Christian responsibility, not quietism, not utopianism. But Augustine's theology for an age of terror was one of reluctant, sorrowful participation from time to time in the just use of violence under the direction of the prince uh, when required to defend what is God's. Yeah. Our notion of just war tends to be enthusiastic participation in violence to protect what is ours. Yeah. Uh, Augustine would have nothing to do with, even, even self-defense was not legitimate yeah. cause for violence. Yeah. In a way, our dilemma, I think, is much harder because we're all Augustinians, because we've all followed Augustine in taking the notion of responsibility to its individual as well as corporate level. How do we translate the Augustinian notion of sorrowful obedience to the prince into the dilemmas today of protecting what is ours, protecting us? The, 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 the way in which it's framed today is so very different from Augustine's mentality. Yeah, I'll come back to that uh, quote by uh, this wonderful philosopher at the University of Chicago, Jean Betka Elstein, who talks about a chastened form of civic virtue. This word chastened, I think, is left out in the definition you give, uh, which I think is accurate. Often the way we think about just war is we have a right to do this, our property is being assaulted, let's go get them. Uh, which in some ways tends to bleed much more clearly into a crusading idea of just war than the Augustinian point of view, which is concerned to restrain violence in the interest of a, a relative justice that might be attained by temporal means. Uh, when we forget those qualifiers, then I think um, you know, we, we're not any longer really working within the Augustinian world. We've moved to much more of a medieval or even more recent, perhaps, crusading mentality. I think it's very difficult to uh, justify violence, corporate violence on that model. And I myself have a question. I'm not, an, I'm not a ethicist, a social ethicist, I, but I have a question about how far just war theory can be stretched in the kind of world in which we live, in which violence to non-combatants and so forth is very much a, a part of the scene. So that's another issue, another debate, but uh, it seems to me the Augustinian perspective wants to restrain this, to use violence, yes, when necessary, and it is necessary in a fallen, broken world to do that. He would clearly say so under officially sanctioned authority, but to do so with uh, the restoration of some kind of temporal justice in view. Last question. Yeah, um, you talked about the age of terror, our age of terror, our uh, precarious situation. Um, and it, it seemed to me that when you're talking about this, it was the United States and the threat we face for terrorism. 
But where you live and what uh, citizen you're a resident of mm. makes a big difference in how you view this age of terror. Yeah. You know, obviously, the United States does face the threat of terrorism, but the United States has also invaded other countries. And if you were a resident of those other countries, you might view the United States' actions you know, quite yeah. differently. Um, you also talked about the uh, double citizenship and, and the, the, um, the, our contested loyalties. And so my question is, how, how should Christians who who often in, in, in our country talk about the war in Iraq as a mistake, you know, as, as almost something that's not an act of injustice, not, a, not, not something that's very serious. Um, how should Christians view this and, and our role as residents of this very powerful country when our country, when, when there, you can make a very good case that our country is doing a lot of things that, that are, are not comparable but, but very bad. I got your first but, question, but could you restate your second one just as yeah, succinctly as possible? Yeah, the point, I mean, we, we invaded a country, we've, we've killed thousands and thousands yeah, of people. That's Iraq. the reality. Yeah. And we yeah. talk about that as a mistake. And as a lot a, of Christians mistake, find that as saying. a mistake, okay. not something that was wrong, not something that was bad, not something that was unjust, yeah. but a mistake. And, that, and, and many Christians find that very troubling. Okay. I find that very troubling. Yeah. Well, if you're looking for me to give a rousing defense of the war in Iraq, I'm afraid I'm not going to do it. Um, because I'm not sure I can do it, uh, or should do it, if I could. Uh, but I think the same kind of questions you ask could be asked of other conflicts. I mean, Iraq is obviously where we are, and it's a pressing issue in our culture and in our, in our political life today. But many of the same kinds of questions you ask could be asked about the Second World War, I think. It could be asked about any number of conflicts which involve uh, a massive use of force against other countries. Uh, was this justified? Was this uh, a part of a legitimate, ordained response? You know, those are the kinds of questions, I think, we, for which we are responsible. We do have to answer them. I want to ask, answer your first question, if I can. And that is, you know, we see terrorism from our point of view. You know, they, they attacked us on 9-11, and, and certainly I think that's true in a way. Whether or not it was provoked in some wider, more cosmic sense, you know, that's another, I think, debate we could have. And I also think that terrorism is not limited simply to the West. Uh, it's certainly not just limited to the United States or North America. Uh, it's an ever-present reality. For example, take the country of Nigeria, uh, or the country of Kenya, or the country of the Sudan, those three countries in Africa, all of them rent, even today, by violence that is to some extent religiously motivated. Uh, so this, I think, is a world problem. It isn't just a Western problem, or a North American or American problem. Uh, it's a problem uh, of the kind of uh, very difficult ambiguity in which we're called to live out our faith in this kind of world. So what should our response be? I think it should be solidarity with all of those persons who are persecuted, who are assaulted, who are under threat. We, have solid, we, we are called not to neglect them, not to simply walk away and build bigger walls ourselves for ourselves, uh, but we are called to work in solidarity for their well-being too. That's a part of what Augustine would have us do while being sure that our own action, back to your Iraq question, are actions that are motivated and uh, carried out uh, with the idea of justice, relative justice in this fallen world. I think that's the Augustinian view. As, I, as I'm sure you know, you regular January series folks, books are for sale in the West Lobby, and Dr. George will be there to greet you uh, very soon. So thank you so much for coming, and thank you, Dr. George. Appreciate you.